welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Uh, good morning, Saturday morning, everyone. Or at least uh, that's when we're recording. How are you doing, Will? I'm all right. Feeling pretty relaxed. I got my dog here next to me. Uh, he's a good boy. We have some pretty exciting anniversaries coming up. This week is actually the 10th anniversary of the Rally to Restore Sanity. I, I didn't want that to pass without it being acknowledged. You pointed out an exciting anniversary to me, though, that may be a little bit more relevant to the topic of this week's episode. Well, hang on. I don't think you're treating the Rally to Restore Sanity with the reverence that it deserves because, you know, it was 10 years ago. We, we restored sanity. It was 10 years ago that the foul scourge of partisanship was finally buried once and for all. Whether it's 9-11 truthers, or or racists or Marxists. What was it? It was yeah. Them all. Yeah, it was uh, yeah. It was uh, in Stewart's kind of closing riff. It was uh, Tea Party fanatics or something and racists uh, and or Marxists who want to destroy the Constitution. But and you know they almost e- did. E- but we got them <laughs> equally sinister antagonists uh, in American life. But fortunately, sanity was restored and we've moved on. Uh, yeah, no, the other anniversary here, New York D- Daily News headline on this day, that is the day we're recording, October the 24th, uh, in 1947, Walt Disney appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee. New York Daily News headline, Communist tried to capture Mickey Mouse, says Disney. President Walt Disney today told the House Committee of Un-American Activities that communists once took over his studio. He also called the League of Women Voters a communist front organization. The mustache cartoonist said the commie invasion occurred last year during a strike at his plant by Herbert K. Sorrell. Sorrell, president of the Conference of Studio Unions, which has plagued Hollywood with a jurisdictional strike for more than a year, was identified by Disney as a communist. Uh, So there was a strike at his factory and uh, international communism is to blame. It's convenient. Anyway, reading this, uh, I was thinking back to the episode we did on that god-awful... What was the name of that film where Tom Hanks plays Disney? That was Saving Mr. Banks, and I found it absolutely delightful. Just an <laughs> inspirational story of Disney strong-arming that that mean woman. So if you're a new listener, you know, Will has this long-standing beef, or I should say the podcast has a long-standing beef, albeit a rather one-sided one with uh, Mr. Tom Hanks, who uh, I think indirectly is still responsible for maybe our only one star review on uh, the iTunes podcast uh, review app uh, review thing or whatever because uh, somebody who was a longtime listener took great umbrage with Will's suggestion that Tom Hanks has helped gentrify the landscape of American culture. Well, you know, like Terry Malloy, I will take the lonely stand against a powerful mob boss. <laughs> But yeah, God, that film was uh, that film was truly awful. And it's, yeah, it's funny. There was nothing about Walt Disney's politics in it. It's weird. Uh, but but there was everything about Walt Disney's politics in it. Did you know that he gave Lenny Riefenstahl a tour of the studio? Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it is. In the 1930s, none of the other Hollywood executives <laughs> would meet with her. I mean, a lot of the Hollywood executives were Jewish and didn't didn't think very kindly of Lenny Riefenstahl. But uh, Walt Disney uh, let her take a tour. Well, well, what you don't understand is that the only criteria criterion that matters uh, when you're dealing with a fellow artist is the quality of their uh, art and politics need to be uh, set aside. Speaking of art and politics, something that amused me a bit this week was a controversy that swirled around the actor Chris Pratt. (laughs) He is one of the Avengers. He is uh, the Guardian of the Galaxy, and he was one of the few major Avengers who didn't take part this week in some online fundraiser for (laughs) Biden-Harris. This led to uh, efforts to cancel him online. 
there were there were a lot of people you know saying well we all knew he was trash he's obviously a secret republican he's he's a high profile hollywood christian and i believe he's also married into the schwarzenegger family so like probably not a flaming liberal but he seems to keep it close to the vest so so that's funny but what's also funny is like in response to it Every Avenger was on Twitter, you know, much like the people in the Manchurian Candidate <laughs> saying Chris Pratt is the kindest, bravest, warmest person I've ever known. Like, it's clear that Disney sent out the group DM to everybody that's like, Avengers assemble. <laughs> we need a press release in solidarity with Chris Pratt. So all that was funny. And, and the additional thing that I found funny was remembering that, you know, it seems like as recently as the mid-Obama era, most celebrities were studiously apolitical, at least publicly. I, I know that in Hollywood, there's this kind of cliche that everybody is a liberal, and it probably does veer more culturally liberal. But, you know, as recently as the Iraq War, it seems like the actual outspoken Hollywood celebrities were so few that they could be assembled into Team America as marionettes and blown up. And, you know, they were among the most hated people in America. You know, Sean Penn, Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins. I looked again, as I often do, at that clip of Michael Moore speaking at the Oscars. One of his greatest moments, undeniably. Yeah, yeah, it was very brave of him. And there's this amazing shot of the front row <laughs> during that, where it's uh, Harrison it's Ford. Just Harrison Ford Nicole, looking stone-faced. Denzel Washington. They're all there, and their eyebrows are all kind of raised, and they all have these kind of plastered smiles on their faces, and not a single one of them is applauding. And, you know, look, I'm not I'm not here to condemn Harrison Ford, but I do think it's funny how much fashion has changed. Like then it was considered career ruining or or at least career threatening or some unnecessary hassle to their careers to engage in politics in any way. But now everybody seems to be expected to make a political stand. I'd have to do some more thinking about this, but I suspect this is part of the legacy of the Obama era, because I think more so than any other Democratic president or kind of any other era of democratic government, you know, the Obama period elevated celebrity in such an important way and celebrity became crucial to absolutely everything. That's something that came out in these Obama staffer memoirs is just how important they thought celebrity and fame was. And I can't remember even what the incident was recently that had one of the pod save guys that worked in the Obama administration complaining about how the Trump, you know, Trump had executed something and was like, if this was 2012, you know, we would have had the the cream of the crop, the best celebrities out there doing PSAs about, you know, whatever the whatever the thing was. And whether, you know, whether Obama uh, and his people kind of uh, were the agents of bring that about or w whether merely that period kind of inaugurated something, uh, something bigger, some bigger cultural shift, I'm not really sure. But it seems to be something that that I became aware of circa maybe 2012 and which has really been uh, present since. And you could say the same thing about Hollywood Republicans, right? Like, I feel that they're oh, a yeah. lot more vocal. Uh, you know, we've despite sanity having been restored in 2010. I mean, you know, who can uh, who can forget the Clint East? with chair speech there seems to have been a popularization of this idea that if you have a platform it is your moral obligation to use it for good perhaps this has also been fostered by social media where like yeah. everybody has a platform you know and it's funny because uh in the abstract that's such a you know that's actually a good idea right we want people mm -hmm. with big platforms if they're going to take good positions on things to mm -hmm. you know use their positions and their audiences for good and yet you know, one of the legacies of this on social media is something that I know both of us complain about. I'm not sure we've ever complained about it on the show before, which is just that 
Well, actually, I'm sure we have. You know, the fact that in the Trump era, it's not just celebrities, right? Everybody is a pundit now, whether or not they're employed as pundits or not. Everybody's become a pundit. Everyone's learned the pundit speak. It is pretty exhausting. And f- and furthermore, you know, in the political sphere, celebrity is now this currency that is traded in. So everything has celebrity uh, endorsements. So celebrities are kind of like pawns of one faction or another. And celebrities are now so visible during U.S. elections. I mean, do you remember just how central the Hillary Clinton campaign made celebrities to their pitch? It was like, look, if Hillary's president, you're going to get to see all even more of all these people for the next four or eight years. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Eight years of Lena Dunham. Can you imagine? Yeah. Do you remember it being controversial at whatever Super Bowl it was when Beyonce stood in front of that big sign that said feminism? Because I feel like that was a moment that took place at kind of a turning point, right? Yeah, there was another incident, I think, at was it the 2016 Super Bowl, um, where I guess her backup dancers had some kind of clothing that made reference to the Black Panthers or something like that. Uh, I, I remember there was one of the most annoying uh, city councillors in Toronto, you know, obviously a right-leaning councillor, had some motion that said, like, Beyonce should be banned from performing in Toronto. Oh, because it's hate speech <laughs> so or something some, like that? Some some nonsense like that. Yeah. But anyway, like, if, if she stood in front of a big sign that said feminist at the Super Bowl this year, mm-hmm. like, I guess... I guess it would still be controversial in certain like far right circles, but it would basically be expected. You know, it would not really be a huge, I think, water cooler talking point. Yeah, I mean, it would just map onto the cultural polarization that seems to just dominate everything now. So there would be, you know, every viral moment like that is a sort of jobs program for people that work in the kind of Coke funded media circuit. Imagine something like that happening now, all the articles in like the Federalist and the National Review online that would inspire. And then similarly, the corresponding articles in liberal publications celebrating it or uh, or whatever. Anyway. I, now we're just complaining about the culture war. The thing about complaining about stuff like this is you occasionally run the risk of sounding like Trey Parker and Matt Stone <laughs> making Team America. You know, oh, these these celebs just parroting stuff they don't know. I suppose it is preferable for celebrities to be politically engaged than to not be. I think the problem is so few celebrities genuinely are politically engaged. They are just like taking sides in a culture war, which makes the ones who... Mm do seem genuinely politically engaged, like we have to protect them and cherish them. Like, did you hear the recent uh, Tim Robbins appearance on Chapo? I thought that was great. I did. Yeah, I found that interesting. And I have a lot of admiration for Tim Robbins because he was somebody who really took unfashionable stands in difficult times. I mean, I I remember he lost work because of his Iraq war protesting. Yeah, or John Cusack stumping for Bernie, I thought was great. You know, so well, sure. <laughs> any any celebrity who endorses Bernie, Danny DeVito, anybody. Anyway, one of the reasons why I brought up this whole conversation is because we were talking off mic about another one of my favorite Oscar moments, another politically charged Oscar moment, which is when Elia Kazan won a Lifetime Achievement Oscar in 1999. This year, the Academy's Board of Governors presents its honorary Oscar to a man whose work is vitally important in the history of American film. He was the master of a new kind of psychological and behavioral truth in acting. The work that he did and the actors he used brought a thrilling new reality to the stage and screen. More than anybody, he inspired us. He taught us a new respect for ourselves as actors and the potential power of our professional uh, profession. Which, which, by the way, when it happened, that was the first time I had ever heard of Elia Kazan. Right. Well, you were 10 in 1999, so fair enough. And I remember there being a big drumbeat in the press 
you know, are people going to applaud? You know, are people going to sit on their hands? It was quite controversial at the time. In fact, I remember my parents, God bless them, being quite upset that Elia Kazan was getting a Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Really? Boomer liberals can surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this moment you're referring to uh, actually kind of does surprise me. Uh, and it makes me think better of Hollywood in a way that feels slightly unexpected. Because the fact that there was any uh, dissent from, you know, the idea of applause Elia Kazan uh, at all at something like this is uh, astounding to me. Yeah, well, I remember at the Oscars that year, Chris Rock presented an award and he made a joke. I'm loving it. It's a big controversial night. The uh, Kazan thing. I saw De Niro backstage. You better get Kazan away from De Niro because you know he hates rats. <laughs> now, well, 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 at the Oscars, we're here. Hey, you can't do that, man. Now, somebody has a death wish if they wanted me to come up here. Actually, if anybody hasn't seen that clip, it's worth watching because, you know, most Lifetime Achievement Oscar winners just get an automatic standing ovation. Kazan got like a half standing ovation. There were two celebrities in particular who didn't applaud. Ed Harris and Nick Nolte. Those were the two who the camera caught. There were several celebrities who, you know, instantly stood up. And if you look at their faces, there's kind of like a hint of defiance in their faces. Like, that's right. I'm standing up. I'm applauding Elia Kazan. Yeah, Kathy Bates, Meryl Streep, and uh, very disappointingly, Warren Beatty. Well, Warren Beatty began his career with Elia Kazan. Kazan was the one who discovered I know, him, but so. Warren Beatty also directed Reds. So it's, it's very frustrating. And in doing so, you know, I think the kind of the popular view or what was used to justify this at the time was laid out by uh, Kenneth Turin, who was the LA Times film critic, uh, who wrote, the only criterion for an award like this is the work. So that's kind of the line mm-hmm. people took, is there can be a firewall between Kazan and uh, anything he may or may not have done, in fact, uh, that he did do. Uh, yeah, that's a very unfashionable point of view nowadays. I mean, I remember my mo- my mother saying during the Oscars how unfair it was that he was getting the award because part of his lifetime achievement was was naming those names. He did this to save his career or to have a career after that. So part of that career is at the expense of these eight people whose names he named. So when you celebrate his lifetime achievement, that's one of the things you celebrate. But to the point earlier, most of the people in the audience, I think a decisive plurality of them at least, did a thing where they didn't stand but they sat and applauded, you know. That is the most, that that is the rally to restore sanity, like, position on Elia Kazan is uh, just a half-hearted gesture that's completely non-committal, that sort of uh-huh. pays lip service to the idea of dissenting from something while fundamentally endorsing it at the same time, but also not really doing that either. I mean, surely the two possible positions here are what Elia Kazan did was actually right and good and fine, in which case you can stand up and applaud, or it wasn't, in which case you don't. I mean, that's right. <laughs> that, uh, and I suppose we, we should talk about, uh, for those unfamiliar with uh, with Kazan and, and kind of the controversy we're discussing, Kazan uh, in his mid-20s, so this was during the Great Depression, I guess, uh, kind of the mid-1930s, was a member of the American Communist Party for only about 18 months and uh, he lived in New York at the time. And in 1952, during McCarthyism, he was called to testify under oath and uh, name names of people who had been involved in this avant-garde theater troupe he'd belonged to uh, who were communists. 
So these are his, uh, his former comrades uh, at something called the Group Theater. And he identified eight of them. Clifford Odets, Edward Bromberg, Louis Leverett, Morris Karnovsky, Phoebe Brand, Tony Kraber, Ted Wellman, and Paula Miller. He provided various details about their activities. And as far as I know, and I haven't looked into, uh, you know, each of these people and what happened to them, but Kazan was able to continue working in Hollywood. And during McCarthyism, countless people had their careers completely ruined. Plenty of people, in fact, that you've heard of. So I remember once hearing Pete Seeger recounting the experience of McCarthyism for someone like him. And it was like, you know, he and his band went from playing at places like Carnegie Hall to, you know, these, these tiny little bars in front of, you know, dozens of people. I mean, this had an absolutely devastating effect. Uh, the combination of, you know, all the blacklisting uh, and the political repression that came with the McCarthy era. And Ilya Kazan was directly uh, complicit in this. He later justified his decision, or in fact, I, I guess at the time justified his, his decision by taking out a full page ad in the New York Times, which hilariously, if you have the Criterion edition of the film we watched this week, uh, you can read it. It's in the little booklet. And it's pretty standard sort of uh, 1950s sort of Red Scare era fare. You know, he talks about this little avant-garde theater troupe as if it was like a mini version of Stalin's USSR in the 30s, if you were a member of the Communist Party or something like that. So Ilya Kazan, uh, permanently traumatized by this 18-month experience of being a member of a communist cell embedded in a, in a theater troupe. And, you know, the Ilya Kazan controversy flares up every now and then. Well, because his granddaughter is on Twitter, right? And this is one of those things that Zoe Kazan, yeah, who's a successful and famous actress in her own right. And it's very, it's, it's, it's so funny. It's kind of almost hyper real because it reminds you of kind of what, what by this point is a sort of famous piece of Hollywood lore. And she'll, she'll get on Twitter. Twitter to complain about people uh Bernie Bros. Yeah, Ber or... <laughs> Bernie Bros are coming for her rat uh grandfather. Uh and then you know there's just always this incredible chorus of blue check mark libs being like so sorry you're going through this or whatever. Well, she wrote a whole editorial for I think it was the Hollywood Reporter or something a few a few years ago, you know, grappling with the legacy of her grandfather, quote unquote, where I think the main thrust of her I'm argument I'm sure there wasn't was, a lot of grappling to be done. The the main thrust of her argument was uh you know, well a, a, as an ethnic American, uh, his his Americanness was constantly called into question and so if you were in that position what would you do, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Uh, my feeling about Zoe Kazan is that's, like, I mean, that can we just stop for a second? Go I mean, ahead. That's, <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> that I mean, that is like I'm sure that was a post 2016 uh, defense, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, that because that type of argument was invented in 2016 for very obvious reasons. I think there's not a, a need to say much more on that. But uh, sometimes I see people defending her being like, well, it, it's unfair to criticize her for the crimes of her grandfather or whatever. And, you know, frankly, I think that if you're a famous person in Hollywood whose name is Kazan, uh, getting the occasional ratio on Twitter is that's called a wealth tax. OK, <laughs> you can you can take that. Well, it it is it is unfair to I mean, it's she, you know, she didn't sell out former comrades to Joe McCarthy, but uh, but she's defending it, which is why people are uh, complaining. Yeah. <laughs> and she benefits from the legacy, you know, so <laughs> so it's fine. Now, uh, I don't know much about Kazan's later life, but in preparing for this, this episode, I did find some excerpts from a speech he gave uh, in Athens in 1978. It does seem very much like he became a kind of Cold War liberal. I mean, what's evoked by this passage is very standard kind of, I used to be a radical until I saw the light kind of thing. He said, in my own view, the solution is to talk about human beings and not abstracts. 
to reveal the culture and the social moment as it is reflected in the behavior and the lives of individual people, not to be, quote, correct, to be total. So I do not believe in any ideology that does not permit, no, encourage the freedom of the individual. Uh, Kazan also offered his opinions about the role of the U.S. as a world model for democracy. He said, I think you and I, all of us, have some sort of stake in the United States. If it fails, the failure will be that of all of us, of mankind itself. It will cost us all. I think of the United States as a country which is an arena, and in that arena, there is a drama being played out. I have seen that the struggle is the struggle of free men. So yeah, pretty standard sort of Cold War stuff there. We don't need to dwell too much more on... uh, I don't think we need to dwell too much more on Kazan's testimony during the McCarthy era, but I think it is worth just saying finally and conclusively that, you know, this shtick that by collaborating with HUAC, you were somehow taking a noble stand in defense of freedom, you know, by aligning yourself with this brutal political repression that was used to end so many careers and ruin so many lives and persecute so many legitimate critics of the U.S. government, of capitalism, etc. You were somehow uh, taking a stand in defense of freedom. I mean, that's, uh, that's transparent nonsense. Is there anything else you want to say on this? Maybe just the oft-repeated sticking point that he was at the peak of his career when he did this. He was wildly successful. He had done a decade of pretty revolutionary theater work in New York. He'd won the Best Director Oscar in 1947. He'd made A Streetcar Named Desire, which was another major film and another uh, big Brando performance. And what people often say about Kazan that I that I happen to believe is true is that, you know, even if his career was destroyed in Hollywood, he wouldn't have been out of a job. He could have continued working. Elie Kazan said that it was not easy in America to raise funds to make films on Puerto Ricans, and that in that case it was not easy to find money to make such a film. Chère Mademoiselle, you have chosen the wrong metteur en scène. Vous avez pris le mauvais metteur en scène. Because Ilya Kazan is a traitor. Et parce qu'Ilya Kazan est un traître. He is a man who sold to McCarthy, all of his companions, at a time when he could continue to work in New York at high salary. And having sold all of his people to McCarthy, he then made a film called On the Waterfront, which was a celebration of the informer. And therefore, no question which uses him as an example can be answered by me. I have to add, I have to add that he is a very good director. Je dois ajouter que c'est un excellent metteur en scène. And, you know, people often say, well, what would you have done in that situation? Would you have done any better? And there's obviously no way to prove that. But I do know that Arthur Miller was actually supposed to write on the waterfront. He wrote a first draft of it. But he backed out of the project because of the testimony. So it's not like there weren't people at the time who recognized that this was wrong. And there weren't people around Kazan who who could and would have done better. Well, I'm glad you brought up Arthur Miller because I think he's actually a good segue into the film. Um, so despite everything we've said about Kazan, I think one of the one of the reasons we want to do this film is because its context notwithstanding, it is truly one of the great American films. Um, and Kazan was undeniably a great director. Uh, we've done, I think, one of his films on the podcast before quite some time ago, A Face in the Crowd, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. He also directed Viva Sabata, which, like On the Waterfront, stars Marlon Brando. And, uh, and I mentioned A Streetcar Named Desire. All of these are great uh, films. 
And there's a piece I revisited from Jacobin, a 2014 piece called Revisiting on the Waterfront by Kathy Newman that I really liked. Uh, she quotes Arthur Miller, who you brought up a moment ago, who laid out the context for On the Waterfront and its setting. Miller wrote several plays about the waterfront. And to, just to put its setting in context here, I want to read a few words from Arthur Miller here. He says, I stood around with longshoremen huddling in doorways in rain and snow on Columbia Street, facing the piers, waiting for the hiring boss on whose arrival they surged forward and formed up in a semicircle to attract his pointing finger and the numbered brass checks that guaranteed a job for the day. After distributing the checks to his favorites, who had quietly paid him off, the boss often found a couple left over and in his generosity tossed them into the air over the little crowd. In a frantic scramble, the men would tear at each other's hands, sometimes getting into bad fights. Their cattle-like acceptance of this humiliating process struck me as an outrage, even more sinister than the procedure itself. It was as though they had lost the mere awareness of hope. So this this uh, routine, this procedure, this ritual, which was called the shape-up, was, I guess, very common on the docks uh, in New York City and elsewhere in the 1940s. This was a profession a lot of working-class men worked in, but a big part of it, uh, at least in the 1940s, is that there were often a lot more men than there were jobs to be done. And so the hours you could get in this work uh, were very coveted, and this ritual of the shape-up that Miller describes is a big part of the plot of On the Waterfront which, among other things, captures a particular experience of uh, the American working class in the post-war era very well. The Criterion Blu-ray has an interesting interview with a historian named James T. Fisher, who talks a little bit about the historical context of the docks. The port of New York and New Jersey was one of the main industries in New York. It was really the industry that made New York what it is today. And it was very difficult, very dangerous work working at the docks. So it was almost entirely done in the 19th and early 20th century by Irish immigrants who couldn't get employed anywhere else. The whole Irish diaspora was was centered around the docks. And so what happened? It became its own kind of Irish fiefdom, socially, politically. Tammany Hall, the big Democratic Party machine, essentially sprang from the docks, uh, and each pier had its own kind of political hierarchy. Now, I know that all the characters in On the Waterfront are based on equivalent real-life characters. The corrupt union boss in the film, played by Lee J. Cobb, was based on a character named William J. McCormack, who was this self-made businessman, not a union leader, but basically a businessman who had a monopoly on all the food shipments in New York and wielded enormous influence over the president of the unions. You know, he would bribe the union leader and the union leader in turn would enforce austerity on the union, low wages, underemployment. All of this made the workers very vulnerable to loan sharking because the docks were a law unto themselves. There was not a great deal of law enforcement there. Even the church didn't have an extremely active presence in the docks themselves, and the docks were isolated physically from the rest of Manhattan. So there was enorm an enormous amount of criminal behavior, loan sharking I mentioned, but also uh, horrific, unsafe labor conditions. And, and if there was a law, it was the code of silence, you know? I didn't see anything, you didn't see anything. And that's the context in which this story was built. Remember that night in the garden, you came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night? I could have taken Wilson apart. 
So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. Let's lay out the story a little bit for people who haven't seen the film. It opens with Marlon Brando, who plays the protagonist, Terry Malloy, calling up to someone in an apartment building who moments later falls to his death. A local priest, uh, who's also based on a real person, and a young woman who's the sister of the dead man, rush to the scene, and both are determined to get to the bottom of what happened, of course, suspecting foul play, which of course is what's involved. He's been pushed from the roof. And from there, the plot becomes this struggle between good and evil that is centered on the fulcrum of Terry Malloy. He is a, a broken down ex-boxer, a guy who could have been a contender, but instead got a one-way ticket to Palookaville. <laughs> but who, in addition to working at the docks, acts as a sort of henchman to the corrupt union leader, played by Lee J. Cobb, who is the man responsible for the death. There's a police investigation into the killing. Nobody in the docks will say what happened because uh, nobody saw anything. There's also the preacher, the love interest, Eva Marie Saint, and Malloy's mob-affiliated older brother, uh, played by Rod Steiger, who are all kind of pulling him in different directions. To get into spoiler territory, which is such a degraded uh, terminology, we're gonna we're, we're gonna we're, we're gonna spoil 1954s <laughs> on the waterfront. The the thing is, if you don't give a spoiler warning, there's always somebody out there who says, "I can't believe you spoiled on the waterfront, one of the most famous movies ever made." <laughs> <laughs> but he does uh, sing like a canary. Uh, and is initially ostracized by his co-workers at the docks until the, the final scene, which is this great rallying of solidarity where everybody eventually follows Malloy into work, leaving the corrupt union leader behind. I guess one of the other crucial details we learn is that during Terry Malloy's time as a prize fighter, he actually lost a crucial fight on purpose because he was already tied up with organized crime. And he was essentially ordered to lose this fight uh, because they had bets on the other guy. He was told it wasn't his night, but uh, his night never came. Yeah, so when, when Brando speaks what's almost certainly the most famous line in the film, right? I could have been a contender. That's what he's talking about. Not to drag this back to Kazan, but is there perhaps a reading of this where Terry Malloy's predicament is supposed to kind of be a stand-in for the way that collectivism crushes the individual and their dreams? Well, I'm glad you asked. I pulled Marlon Brando's autobiography off the shelf to see what he had to say about it. He said, quote, I was reluctant to take part because I was conflicted about what Gadge, that's Kazan's nickname, had done and knew some of the people who he had deeply hurt. And he goes on to say, I finally decided to do the film, but what I didn't realize was that On the Waterfront was really a metaphorical argument by Gadge and Bud Schulberg, the screenwriter. They made the film to justify thinking on their friends. Evidently, as Terry Malloy, I represented the spirit of the brave, courageous men who defeated evil. Neither Gadge nor Bud Schulberg ever had second thought about testifying before the committee. So, so that's what Brando says. I mean, Brando claims not to have known what the allegorical significance of the movie was for uh, his mentor. 
Do you think that's true? I mean, it's hard to imagine, but I mean, all sources indicate that he didn't. I mean, it's hard to believe looking at this movie in this context that he wouldn't have known or would have been so, so stupid, frankly, not to have realized. But I mean, Brando did have pretty good politics throughout his life. He says in that same passage of the book, uh, innocent people were also blacklisted, including me. Uh, by the way, parenthetically, I'm not sure what he, how he would define blacklisting. He might mean gray listing or, or some sort of professional ostracization. But he says, innocent people were also blacklisted, including me, although I never had a political affiliation of any kind. It was simply because I signed a petition to protest the lynching of a black man in the South. In those days, stepping off the sidewalk with your left foot first was grounds for suspicion that you were a member of the Communist Party. To this day, I believe that we missed the establishment of fascism in this country by a hair. Huh, maybe I do buy the idea that he took Kazan's project in good faith and uh, didn't realize uh, what, what he was really doing. We should say that this isn't something that we, you know, we're kind of retroactively projecting onto the film. In his 1988 autobiography, Kazan directly ties the film and its plot to his own testimony. He writes, when Brando at the end of On the Waterfront yells at Lee Cobb, the mob boss, I'm glad what I done. You hear me? Glad what I done. That was me saying with identical heat that I was glad I'd testified as I had. And there's another uh, passage in the book, which I think is also relevant here. He says, I was determined to show my old comrades, and that's in quotation marks, those who'd attacked me so viciously that there was an anti-communist left and that we were the true progressives and they were not. I'd come back to fight. (laughs) Sound familiar? I mean, not to do a false equivalence, but you see that all the time. (laughs) I mean, it's funny because one of the reasons why the movie is is so watchable, despite its allegorical significance for Kazan, is because... Not only watchable, I mean, it's well, breathtaking. Of course, it's, 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 it's an incredible, powerful film. It just, it fires on all cylinders. But what's funny is it's such a false equivalence that the movie sets up. Well, the idea that a longshoreman's union that's been taken over by the mob and which is persecuting local men who need work... The, the idea that that has any that that is in any way analogous to like going to the police or testifying before a court, which is what Terry Malloy does in the film and fingering the members of the mob. The idea that that is in any way equivalent of like naming people who were involved 17 years earlier in an avant-garde theater troupe and were members of the CPUSA. Uh, I mean, it's a ridiculous equivalence. It's funny to take on its own terms, though, because you start thinking, okay, who is Lee J. Cobb? Is he a metaphor for Clifford Odets or is he a metaphor for Arthur Miller? You know, like, does he represent those Hollywood meanies who turned their backs on him? Or does he represent those struggling avant-garde theater people that he once knew? Is Joseph McCarthy supposed to be Carl Malden? You're a cheap, lousy, dirty, stinking mug! And I'm glad what I've done to you. You hear that? I'm glad what I've done. In a way, I feel guilty that we've dragged things back to complaining about Elia Kazan. Well, let's talk about the movie because there's lots that's good about it. I mean, Brando's performance is, you know, one of the most famous performances in the history of cinema. I think that would be fair to say, right? And it's one of the performances along with A Streetcar Named Desire which helped popularize his method technique. Yeah, as a filmmaker, aside from his testimony, I think Kazan is best remembered for his work with actors. He was the first, or at least the major American 
filmmaker who incorporated the ideas of Stella Adler, the great acting teacher, and principles of so-called method acting, where, I, I mean, me- method acting has become this very broad and amorphous term. Well, it refers to the Stanislavski method, right, specifically? Right, right. You know, I- instead of simulating the emotions, you like, you feel the emotions, you put yourself in the place of those of those emotions. And the result of that technique was to bring acting towards something more naturalistic. I'm putting naturalistic in quotes because like all acting by definition is stylized. But if you watch A Streetcar Named Desire and you see Marlon Brando acting with Vivian Lee in that movie, it's an amazing and even surreal sight to watch these two wildly contrasting acting styles, you know, uh, acting styles of totally different generations interacting with each other. I have a quote from Brando in his autobiography where he said, one of the reasons Gadge was an effective actor's director was because he was able to manipulate people's emotions. He tried to find out everything about his actors and participated emotionally in all scenes. He would come up between takes and tell you something to excite feelings in you that would fit the scene. Beyond the acting, the movie works on every level, you know, from Bud Schulberg's writing, the Leonard Bernstein musical score. Uh, Something that I'd forgotten about this movie was how pungently atmospheric it is and another of Kazan's innovations sort of similar to the principle that he brought to acting was freeing film from the studio so he shot all of these scenes actually in the docks he shot them on the real rooftops of New York can you imagine how how different and you know for the worse this film would be if all these scenes on the docks and those ones on the rooftops were shot in a studio. Oh yeah, he hired real longshoremen to play the extras, and he shot the whole movie during winter, a cold winter in New York, which I think has the effect of de-glamorizing some very glamorous actors. You know, Eva Marie Saint, Marlon Brando, these are very beautiful people who look a little bit disheveled and cold and miserable throughout the movie. Brando has that, uh, you know, something you can't miss is that he his eye, one of his eyebrows is kind of... Uh, separated by a scar or something which i assume wasn't real yeah i i don't think so i don't think i've observed that in any of his other films but yeah he looks quite haggard you know when i saw a streetcar named desire for the first time i think i was i think i was 23 when i saw it for the first time and i remember that because it was a very unexpectedly powerful experience because i mean i had seen marlon brando in movies before that well you'd probably seen the godfather yeah, the right? godfather and i think apocalypse I'd seen, now and i'd seen last tango in paris which oh right yeah. uh, you know is is a power performance but is in a different era of his career mm-hmm. and seeing a streetcar named desire is one of those moments of like you know like i would compare his effect to like seeing prince in concert or seeing bruce lee on on a movie screen or something <laughs> where it's like there's this there's this energy that is very specific to this man in this context there's a particular vibe that seems to cut through time and space almost he is of his time but he is beyond time by the way, just as, an, as a digression, a funny thing about seeing A Streetcar Named Desire in my mid-20s was realizing that actually it had a sad ending because, like, I had seen the Simpsons episode where they do the well, streetcar right, that's, musical. I, I saw the Simpsons episode many times before seeing the film. The Kindness of Strangers, I thought that was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like this is such a quintessentially millennial experience or, well, of, you know, of a very specific kind of millennial because, you know, you watch The Simpsons and it's not just that episode. It's so many episodes of The Simpsons, you know, the early Simpsons, mm-hmm. the, the good canonical Simpsons. 
and you think they're hilarious and you love them, but you don't understand what any of the references are. And then you go back and watch them as an adult mm-hmm. and it all of a sudden you're kind of watching them again for the first time. But getting back to the movie, you were observing to me that ironically, considering its provenance, it's actually quite a powerful statement about solidarity. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, in Kathy Newman's article, which I uh, referred to earlier, she quotes a British filmmaker, Lindsay Anderson, who described the final scene of the movie when Terry Malloy, after testifying at the court and naming his mob compatriots, you know, goes goes to confront uh, the mob boss and ends up brutally beaten. But finally, you know, in, in the last shot of the film, walks up to where they all wait to work and ends up being admitted into the docks to work for the day after which everybody follows him. So in Lindsay Anderson's interpretation, this is a fascist, uh, fascist ending of the scene because Terry Malloy is through violence kind of becoming the new Johnny Friendly. You know, he's defeated one one mob boss and become kind of the new patriarch of the docks. And Newman, I think correctly, you know, disputes this. She writes, Anderson's argument shows how judging Kazan for his political betrayal can lead to a misreading of the film. The closing scene isn't fascist. It's a scene that uses the language of fighting, specifically boxing. Malloy, a former boxer, is down for the count. If Edie or the priest helps him get up, then he can't continue to fight. In this metaphorical boxing round, he'll be disqualified. And so he gets up on his own, which means that the round is over, but the match is not. He will live to fight again. Finally, in this scene, Malloy has become the contender he always knew he could be. Yeah, and I would just add with that, you know, he's we see in the in the final shot of the film, Johnny Friendly struggling, uh, trying and failing to reassert control over the workers at the docks, trying to stop them going into work. Uh, and it's, you know, it symbolizes he's he's lost control, basically. And hopefully now everybody is going to find work. And it's because this single act of defiance, you know, embodying the principle that an injury to one is an injury to all has rallied all of the workers behind Terry Malloy and thus behind each other. I cheered when Humphrey was chosen, my faith in the system restored. And I'm glad that the commies were thrown out from the AFL-CIO bar. And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes as long as they don't move next door. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Ah, the people of old Mississippi should all hang their heads in shame. Now I can't understand how their minds work. What's the matter, don't they watch less crane? But if you ask me to bust my children, I hope the cops take down your name. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Yes, I read New Republic and Nation. I've learned to take every view. You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden. I feel like I'm almost a Jew. But when it comes to times like Korea, there's no one more red, white, and blue. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. I vote for the Democratic Party They want the UN to be strong I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts He sure gets me singing those songs And I'll send all the money you ask for But don't ask me to come on along So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal 
Sibarov. Sure, once I was young and impulsive. I wore every conceivable pin. Even went to socialist meetings. Learned all the old union hymns. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser. And that's why I'm turning. 